0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. The guys have some Bibles, so if you need one, get their attention as they make their way to the back. They'll get one of those Bibles to you that's already marked at Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at that and a couple of other passages that I'll have you turn to, and I have the page numbers for those, for those of you that are using the Bibles that the guys are distributing. When I was a boy, my family would take an annual trek to Kentucky where my mom was from on Toller's Creek near Pikeville. On Sundays, we'd attend the church that she grew up in, and that building had just a little sign on the front that said, the Church of Christ meets here. And I wondered why it didn't just say, as most church signs do, Church of Christ or First Baptist Church or Grace Presbyterian Church, or whatever the name is. But years later, I learned that the words meets here were important. They were important to distinguish the building from the church. The sign was communicating, this structure is not the Church of Christ, but this is where the Church of Christ meets. Now, technically, this location at 3700 Benson in Trenton, is not Community Bible Church, but rather Community Bible Church meets in this location. And that's because Community Bible Church is the people who comprise it, not the building in which it meets. But the idea that the church is a building is so ingrained in us, we say things like, I'll meet you at the church, or we're having a cleaning day at the church, equating the church with the building. We should probably know what the church is since the Bible speaks of it over 100 times and we use the, the word a lot ourselves. The sign out in our front yard has the word church on it, though many of us refer to this building as the ministry center. It's our way of distinguishing the building from the church. In fact, we thought about putting that on our sign when we moved into this building But we went with church as a concession because it's what most people understand and they would have no earthly idea what a ministry center is. But the Bible speaks of church over a hundred times. Our sign out front says church. The screen behind me says community Bible church. The program you received on the way in says the same. Many of you woke up your kids this morning and you said it's time to get up for church. Some of you have made plans this afternoon. You told folks that you're meeting, that you'll get together after church. And if someone asks your religious affiliation, you might say, I'm a member of Community Bible Church, and on it goes. We use the word church a lot, so we should probably take time to know what it means. That's why I've chosen to begin this year with a short series of messages on the church called Life in the Father's House. The word that's translated church in your New Testament is a Greek word, ekklesia. It means a called out assembly. It refers to people, people who have been called out of the world and to God. Now, when I say called out of the world, I obviously don't mean removed from earth because we're still here. So I'll explain what I mean by world later in the message, but for now, just know that the church is people, a particular people who have been called. The title of each of the messages in this series uses the word call to reflect that biblical definition that we're a called out assembly. The first two weeks, the message was the call to ministry. If you take a look at the outline that's inserted in your program and you look at the top, you'll see that the title of today's message is the call to truth. Next week, we'll see that the church is called to holiness and then the call to mission, the call to selflessness and the call to service. But today, we're going to see that the church is people who are called by God out of error and to truth. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you again for the grand privilege of being able to gather in your presence as your people to open your word and to be instructed thereby. Help us today, Lord, to learn what you say about the importance of your truth given to your people and the role that we're to play in learning it, in living it, and in protecting it. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In that outline that I've asked you to take a look at, the very first thing that we want to look at today is this, that the church is committed to the truth. The church is committed to to the truth, and I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 2, because in verse 42, here's what the first line says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is the description of the very first church to ever exist, the church in the city of Jerusalem. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So before we move on, let's first identify who they are. This first church began as a result of the first Christian message that was ever delivered. It was preached by one of Jesus' first followers, one of his apostles, Peter. And in verses 14 through 36 of Acts chapter 2, Peter explains who Jesus is and how he relates to the event that had occurred earlier in that chapter. Peter uses the occasion to invite people to believe in Jesus, and approximately 3,000 of them did so. And that's why verse 41 says this. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3000 were added to their number that day. So when verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, it's speaking of this group of first Christians, first believers at that very first church in Jerusalem. Now, the reason that that's important is it tells us that the church is comprised of of Christians, of believers. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer. But in today's church, the line between believer and unbeliever has been blurred, so much so that it's not even clear to many who it is that gathers on the Lord's Day, Sunday, like we're doing today, and who it is that that gathering is to be designed for. Friends, when the church gathers for worship, it is, by definition, a gathering of believers. And the worship should be designed for that. Now, all are welcome. But we should not, in the way we do what we do and anything we say, should not give the false impression that attending is being part of the church. Did you know that? Attendance does not make one part of the church. Only those who are believers and who have followed that profession by baptism can be part of the church. And that's the description of this first church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Now some of you are here and you're not members of the church. Or maybe you're members of another church and you're just here from out of town and you're visiting and we welcome you as our guests. But some of you are here and you're and you're not members of this church or any other. You may believe, but you've not joined the church through baptism or through transfer of membership from the place that you are a member, if in fact... Such a place exists. And I say to you, if you've never been baptized, the next opportunity is on March the 20th. So contact me this week about that, and then we will go through the steps to make you a part of that baptism and bring you into the membership of of God's church. If you have been baptized, that is immersed in water, that's what baptism is. If you have been, then I encourage you to join the church. If it's not going to be this church for whatever reason, than another Bible-believing church. But join the church, join a Bible-believing local church so that you can be added to our or their number, as was the case in that first church in Jerusalem. Until you have people who are called by God, you don't have a church. The church is people called by God, and they respond to that initial calling by believing, and so they are known as believers. Believers. My theology professor in seminary, Dr. Roland McCune, used to give us a full definition of the church. And these items in this definition are culled from all the New Testament says about it. He said, the local church is a group of true believers in the Lord. Now notice how it starts. That's what it is. True believers in the Lord. The local church is a group of true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been baptized by immersion in water as a public testimony. And are organized with the biblical offices of pastor and deacons. Sharing a common faith from biblical truth. Observing the ordinances of baptism and communion. Carrying out the great commission and meeting at regular and stated times. <laughs> Yikes. And you thought the church was a building. A lot more to it than that, isn't there? The church is a group of true believers. Those who accept, that is, welcome Receive, believe the message of the gospel as Peter presented it in Acts chapter 2. Now just a few weeks earlier, just a few weeks before Acts chapter 2 and the events recorded there, and that sermon by Peter and the response of those approximately 3,000, just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had given what we call the Great Commission to his apostles. And he told them to teach. Let me remind you of what Jesus said just before he ascended back to the Father, having completed his mission on earth. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, the word for teaching in that passage is the same one as in our passage in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. So just weeks earlier, Jesus had said to Peter and the others, you're going to make disciples of all nations and you're going to teach them. And now this first church has started in Jerusalem. And when the very first activity we see of that church is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now the apostles' teaching is what it is they had heard from Jesus. And later they and others would write it down so that it was available not only for that first church in Jerusalem, but for us as well in the scriptures that you hold in your hand in the New Testament. Now, how was it that they were able to do this? How was it they were able to remember what Jesus had told them so that they could write it down and explain it for us in our New Testament? Well, the night before Jesus was crucified, he told them that they would have extraordinary ability to apprehend and remember the truth that he had taught them. Jesus said in what's called the upper room discourse on that night before he died, he said to them, the spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth. And then he said this, something that I trust all of you understand doesn't apply directly to you and me, but to those guys. He said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And will remind you of everything that I said to you. Now you don't get reminded of everything Jesus said. Because you forget stuff. And I forget stuff. But Jesus said I'm going to give you this special miracle through the Holy Spirit. the special ability to remember the things I said. And they were able then to recall and to teach it. And then to write it down. Teach it to others. Some others who wrote it down. And after the New Testament was written down, the early church referred to it, the New Testament, as the memoirs of the apostles. The memoirs of the apostles. And the church devoted itself to that teaching. Now, that word in Acts 2.42 that's translated devoted is a common word that connotes a a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. It's the same word that's used just a few chapters later in chapter 6 of Acts. Where the apostles say they're going to, quote, give their attention to the ministry of prayer and the word. That is, they're going to devote themselves to those tasks. Now, friends, that church in Jerusalem had been given life by the life-giving word of God as Peter presented. it, And then as a result, they devoted themselves to it. Hear this. We have been given life by the truth of the Word of God, used by the Spirit of God. And as a result now, we are people who love God's truth. And God's truth resonates within us, and we desire more of it. That's the way the Bible describes believers, Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote, You have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And then just a few verses later, Peter says this, therefore long for pure, the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. So they were and we are to be devoted, committed to that truth. We're to have a steadfast and single-minded determination to pursue that truth. Now, I encourage you then to think. Think now of practical ways in which you can do that. Think of ways in which you can pursue God's truth. The truth by which you, you came to know the gospel that the Holy Spirit used to draw you to himself. And now that seed is to be used to grow you in Christ's likeness. So what are practical ways you can give it, you can devote yourself, commit yourself to the truth? Well, one is to prepare yourself for the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. If we're committed to it, we ought to prepare ourselves to receive it. So I ask you, do you ever prepare yourself? You know, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to just go through the motions and just sort of shuffle in. We go through the routine and the guy gets up and he says, open, turn, blah, blah, blah. Shouldn't be that way when God's word is opened, We're prepared. We come ready to receive, eager to receive, preparing ourselves even the night before. So that we're ready, attentive. And throughout the time then, right now, as God's word is being delivered, we're listening, we're focused. And in addition to the times that we gather together, we read it ourselves during the week. If you don't know how to do that, as we begin this new year, we have we have yearly Bible reading guides in the, the resource center. They just give you a passage to read every day, and in a year you can get through the Bible. We offer classes for you to to know God's Word and to better understand God's Word. Those begin anew this, this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. So I encourage you to make your schedule such that, if at all possible, you come and avail yourself of those opportunities. Now, being committed to God's truth then certainly means no less than preparing ourselves to hear it and receive it. It means no less than reading and studying it, but it also means, of course, obeying it in our personal lives and hear this friends even when it's hard even when it runs counter to what we want to do if we're going to be committed to God's truth if we're going to devote ourselves to the apostles teaching then we don't pick and choose the stuff we like it would be easy to falsely assume that all who call community Bible church their church home are people who are committed to God's truth after all We're a Bible church and our motto stated under our logo is we are the family of God built on the word of God. To the glory of God. But for all that we profess in public about our fidelity to the word of God and his truth. Friends, we only know that we really are committed to it. When it costs us something. Did you know that believing And standing for the truth will cost you something. And that's because the world doesn't believe it. The vast majority of the people in the world don't believe it. In fact, are hostile to it. It will cost you something. It may cost you personal comfort. Because the Bible's commanding you to do something or avoid something that's contrary to your own desire. It may cost you popularity because we live in a culture in which tolerance is the only truth. The truth cost Martin Luther. Not to be confused with Martin Luther King, whose birthday we commemorate tomorrow. But Martin Luther was the initiator of the Protestant Reformation nearly 500 years ago. That could have easily cost him his life. And he said this. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And I wonder what that point is for you. I wonder what that point is for you right now in your life. What are the passages you'd prefer to ignore? Are you committed to the word of God until it talks about serving and using your gifts in the church for his glory? Are you committed to the Lord until it talks about money? Until it talks about leading your home, men. Or leaving your home in divorce and prohibiting men. Are you committed to God's truth until it says something that will embarrass you in front of your friends? Like unless you receive Jesus, you will spend eternity in the penitentiary of the damned that the Bible calls hell. So let's water that down. Next week in our community groups, our Sunday night home groups where we meet for discussion of the prior week's message. Next week when we discuss this message. We're going to list some claims to truth. We're going to ask you in those groups. What do you think about those claims to truth and support your claim with scripture is, in fact, do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? (laughs) And are you willing to say so kindly, but directly, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Do you believe that God instituted marriage and that except for the two exceptions he gives in his word of adultery and abandonment, that is a forever union? This side of heaven. Do you believe what God says? Not only when we're in public, not only when it's comfortable, but when it runs contrary to something you want to do in your comfort zone. Being committed to the truth means being committed to it in total, fully, wholly. The church is committed to the truth. Secondly, in your outline, the church promotes the truth. Will you turn a few pages to your right to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. That's page 830, 830 in the Bibles that we distributed. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14 says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions... So that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, when it says church of the living God, that this church is God's household and it's the pillar and foundation of the truth, it's referring to the local, what we call the local church. That is, the church that meets in a particular location, a particular locale, like this one. Now, how do I know it's referring to the local church? Well, in verse 14, Paul, who writes this to Timothy, says, I'm writing you these instructions. What instructions? And if you were to go back to chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, in verses 1 through 8, it's instructions about public prayer in worship. And then beginning in verse 9, instructions about the the role of women in worship. And then as you come to chapter 3, our chapter... Verses 1 through 7 are about qualifications for leaders in the church. In that case, particularly elders, pastors. Verse 8 begins with qualifications of, for deacons in the church. Verse 11, deacons' wives. Deacons again in verses 12 and 13. And then you come to our verse, verse 14. I'm writing you these instructions so that people will know how to conduct themselves. Where? In the church. Where you have worship and public prayers and pastors and deacons and deacons' wives. How to conduct themselves. And that local assembly is referred to as God's household. Church of the living God. Pillar and foundation of the truth. Now we dealt with the notion of the church as God's family two weeks ago. When we started this series, Life in the Father's House. We said then that family is the most often used metaphor for the church in the New Testament. That we are the church, the people of the living God, is in contrast to those who serve other so-called gods, which are worthless and lifeless idols. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when those believers at that church in that city are described and their conversion experience is described, it says this, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We are the church, we are the people of the living God. Going back to the first part of your Bible, Joshua was told by the Lord, as you as you go into the land and as you conquer the land that I have given to you and to my, to my people, understand that you're going into a land of idolaters and you are set apart from them because of this, the living God is among you. The living God. And then again in our New Testament, speaking of us, speaking of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says this. You yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst. The people of the living God in whom that living God is pleased to dwell and among whom. When we gather you yourselves, plural. That verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, is not the same as 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 that many of you are familiar with. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Some of you are familiar with that passage. Just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians. But that's speaking of our individual bodies. Here in chapter 3, it's speaking of the church collectively. And that's why the NIV says it this way. You yourselves are God's temple. This church is God's temple and God's spirit dwells in our midst. When the members of the congregation are scattered during most of the week, it's hard for us to be aware of that reality, that God is in the midst of his people. But when we come together as the church, the church of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and the exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us as we are now. In our fellowship, we love each other as he has loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers coming in may confess, according to 1 Corinthians 14, God is really among you. So this is the church of the living God. But I want you to see that other phrase in verse 15. First 1 Timothy 3. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Pillar and foundation of the truth. I'm going to take those two descriptions. Pillar and foundation in reverse order. And deal with foundation first. The word translated foundation tells us what I say in your outline. That the church secures the truth. It secures the truth. The word that's translated foundation is a construction term that refers to the portion of the building that stabilizes it. And like a foundation stabilizes a building, the church is responsible to hold the truth steady against the storms of heresy and of unbelief. And that's why one of the qualifications for one who would lead any who would lead God's church is that they know the truth and that they be able to refute error. In a list of qualifications for elders in the church in Titus chapter 1, here's what the Bible says. An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And then it goes on. Here's why. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. They must be silenced. It's a qualification for those who would lead God's church. To stabilize the truth against the onslaught, the storms of, of error and heresy, and unbelief. And all of us are told, every Christian is told, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we're to examine everything carefully. And hold on, hold fast to that which is good. Why? Because you're going to get taught, you're going to read, you're going to see all kinds of stuff, right But you only hold on, you only hold on to that which is consistent with the word of God. Now, why is it necessary for the Bible to give us these instructions and these warnings? Because Satan attacks the truth regularly. Going back all the way to the third chapter of your Bible and the the first human sin. Satan questions God's word. Did God really say, you all remember that? And he uses... Even churches and even professing believers to attack his word. That's the really scary part. That's the really satanic subtlety. Because there are so many of us that are naive to think if it's being said in a church, it must be true. If it's being said by a preacher, an evangelist or a guy on TV or on the radio, it must be true. It ain't so for Just in the last few years, the latest charlatan to lead people astray was in our very own state. Rob Bell in Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids. He wrote a book called Love Wins. Love Wins taught this. That when you die, that's not the end of your chances to come to Jesus. That there'll be more chances after you die and more chances... And finally, love will win. Love will win everybody over. So there really is no hell, and everybody will be saved, ultimately. Nearly all of the TV preachers are useless, frankly. I said nearly, so you got your favorite TV preacher. Maybe you found the gem, okay? So don't shoot me in the hallway. But almost all of them are, are useless, honestly, and many are downright dangerous. And yet, and yet, some of us, you know, our toes curl and we cringe when the pastor starts meddling like that. When the pastor says, look, not everybody is on the straight and narrow, not everybody's telling you the truth. A lot of people are there to lead you astray. You must discern. You must secure the truth. Pastor, I don't like it when you name names. Listen, in the New Testament, there are names given of people who are false teachers, and they've been there for 2,000 years now. Charles Spurgeon, London's 19th century, prince of preachers, quoted a, a soldier in arms for the fight for truth, who said this, Excessive aversion to controversy may be an indication that a church has no keen sense of possessing truth, which is of any great worth. And that it has lost appreciation for the infinite difference in value between truth and error. So friends, if you find yourself getting squeamish in the fight for truth, understand that truth is valuable enough to fight for. One way for us to undergird the truth Is to defend it from attack and to discern error. But another is this, to ensure that what we claim is actually grounded in the word in its context. And so if we're not sure about something, if I'm not sure about something, if any of us make a claim grounding it in the word of God, if we're not sure about it, then we should not pretend we are. If there's another legitimate way to interpret a passage, say so. If something that we do is an application of God's truth rather than the truth itself, you know, there is a difference. There's the truth that God gives, and now there's my responsibility and your responsibility to wisely apply that. But my application of God's truth is not the same as the truth. So I need to be careful about not mixing the two up. So if something we do is an application of God's truth rather than the truth itself, we should acknowledge that and allow others to take a different course. But unfortunately, we try to shoehorn our preferences into God's truth. And when we do, we devalue the very truth that we're claiming to defend. What we defend should be the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So the church promotes the truth. By one, securing it, and then I say in your outline, by proclaiming it. It proclaims the truth. The church proclaims the truth. The word that's translated pillar is another construction term. And it's used for not only a column that helps uphold a roof, but it also extends it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. Now this book that you're looking at, 1 Timothy 3, was written to one named Timothy who was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. The people of Ephesus had a vivid illustration of this in a building in their their fair city. In Ephesus was the Temple of Diana, regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Diana had 100 columns... Which were nearly 60 feet high. And together they lifted its massive shining marble roof. And in like fashion the church holds the truth out. So that it can be seen by the world. The church is the foundation of the truth. It secures it. But it also upholds it. It's a pillar upholding it. That's why the Bible says this of us. You are to shine like stars in the sky. As you hold firmly to the word of life. The church holds it high for all to see. But hear this. We can only do that if what I've already said is true. If we stand for the truth in season and out of season. Then we can hold the truth high with integrity. And only if we live it in our personal lives. And we don't call it God's truth when it's our application. Only when we have integrity of what we claim can we hold God's truth high to a watching and needy world. The church is committed to the truth. The church promotes the truth. And lastly, the church is transformed by the truth. Transformed by the truth. I have you turn to one final passage. Now you go to your left again. John. John. Chapter 17, John 17, page 753, 753 in the Bibles we distributed. John 17. And this is, again, on the night before Jesus died. I gave a few passages on the screen a bit ago from John chapter chapters 14 and 16. From John chapter 13 all the way to John 17, all five of those chapters are all on the night before Jesus died. And here, John 17 is a prayer that Jesus gave on that fateful night. And in that prayer, Jesus prays for those who are his first followers, but then those who would become believers later because of their message. The night before Jesus died, he's praying for us. He's praying for me. He's praying for you as he prays to the father, he says some profound things about the relationship between those believers who will come later comprise the church and the world. In verse six. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. In verse nine. I am not praying for the world. But for those you have given me then in verse 11, Jesus says to the father, they are still in the world. But even though they are in the world, verse 11, verse 14, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. In verse 16, again, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You see here, friends, very clearly there's a distinction, right, between the church and the world, those called out and those still in the world. And the world does not mean the physical universe, as in God made the world in six days. That's that's all true and all good. But the word cosmos in your New Testament is most often used in a negative way in your New Testament. Famously, by the same John, he wrote a letter called 1 John, and it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love, love for the Father is not in them. So what is then the world? Here's, here's a, a definition. It's the way non-Christians live apart from common grace. The world is the way non-Christians live apart from the common grace of God. The way non-Christians live apart from the common grace of God. Now, the common grace of God means that even non-Christians live in acceptable ways. Thanks be to God or the planet would be unlivable. That's the world. The worldly are those who live according to the fallen values of the world. That's the worldly. They live according to the fallen values of the world. And worldliness is fallen values expressed in the culture. Fallen values expressed in the culture. You see, not all that the world does is wrong because some of it is common grace. And so thankfully unbelievers, for example, get married. Sometimes a man and a woman. So Thanks to God's common grace. Or they engage in music or the arts. So fallen values in, expressed in culture is what the world is. Or as theologian John Frame says, world is the bad part of culture. There's a good part of culture. World is the bad part. We're going to help you with these in our enhanced the Discipleship program that's going to be part of our 10-year plan that we're putting together one of the things that we're going to do in that is to help all of us with instruction and modeling on how to see the world accurately and then live as a Christian accordingly. Now, I say in your outline, with that understanding of being in the world, not of the world, there are four ways to see our relationship to the world in your outline. The first is this. You can be in the world and of the world. In the world and of the world. If you're both in it and of it, You're an unbeliever. That's your typical garden variety pagan. But then secondly, you can be not in the world and not of the world. So not of the world, that is the values by which you live are gleaned from, come from a Christian worldview, from a biblical basis, at least mostly so. You're a believer, but you're not in the world. That is, you've removed yourself. From the world system. Now, who would that be? That would be Amish, monastics, monks. Or thirdly, you can be not in the world, but still of the world. That is, your values all still come from the world, but you create your own venues for doing it and carrying it out. You know who that is? Unfortunately, that's today's contemporary church. The values come from the world. We just do our own thing. We try to imitate the world in our own way. But what's the proper biblical approach? It's the last one, of course, in the world. But not of the world. Now, next week, we're going to see that the church is called to holiness And that's why verse 17, after Jesus says they are in the world and I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for them. He says in verse 17, sanctify them. Sanctify means set them apart. It means make them holy. Sanctify them how? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Next week, we're going to see that the church is not only called to truth, The church is called to holiness. So your take-home truth today. The church is called to preserve and to live the truth. The church is called both to preserve and to live the truth. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for your word that is truth. And thank you for its power, its living, active, and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it is by the seed of the word of God that we have been born again. And the living word of God then resonates within those who truly belong to you. So that we desire it, so that we want to obey it. Thank you for that gift of grace in our lives. Lord, help us then to take it seriously. Help us to see it as the great gift that it is that comes to us only because of the salvation that we have in Jesus. And help us then, Lord, to be people who are sanctified by the truth in our daily lives. Help us to do that this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.